right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another week of Barstool Backstage. We have a huge interview today. The legend, Adam Duritz of Counting Crows, the man. We just did this interview earlier today. As cool as humanly possible, he's going on tour with Dashboard Confessional. Great stories. Great. There's so many clippable moments from this. I even asked him about Shrek 2. You got to stick around for that. Uh, something new this week. We're going to get into the episode, but we have our first sponsor. So I'm going to let this fly. Today's episode of Barstool Backstage is brought to you by ProtectLink, the game changers in warranty protection. We wanted to bring you a sponsor that is founded and operated by a close friend of ours who we truly believe in. This is why all of us here at Barstool Backstage are proud ProtectLink customers. That's true. Kenny set that up. And no, these guys have not been calling you about your car's extended warranty like a bunch of jagoffs or using actors to sell their overpriced coverage. No, they couldn't get Ryan Reynolds, so they called us. ProtectLink is revolutionary warranty coverage to offer month-to-month coverage on your vehicle, RV, and even home electronics. You know, like your greasy, disgusting cell phone. They do nasty stuff on that you drop, and you break the screen. <laughs> you break the screen, you go, fuck, this is going to cost me a lot of money. Not when you have ProtectLink. No. I know Kenny breaks his phone all the time for disgusting reasons, but he's covered with ProtectLink. Saving you thousands in out-of-pocket costs for a low monthly subscription. Learn more at protectlink.command and use the sign-up code KennySucks. That's right. KennySucks. K-E-N-N-Y-S-U-C-K-S. And enjoy a risk-free seven-day trial. That's ProtectLink. Break your shit and it's cool because then you got ProtectLink. That wasn't bad, right? That was a pretty good first ad read, wasn't it? <laughs> live, live ads as far as the new shit. Yeah. <laughs> what could go wrong? <laughs> nothing. Absolutely nothing. Yeah, dude. Don't fucking drop your phone. Break it. What did I say in the in before we started? It was like, if your stepdad drank all your Mountain Dew and then did loud sex to your mom and you got mad so you picked up your Xbox controller and threw it through your TV, yeah. don't worry. Yeah. Your life sucks, but you have ProtectLink. I like how when they, went, they sent this, like, hoping to get... <laughs> It's like a music podcast, and they're like, let's go, let's go kind of blue collar, and then they get calling like, what's what's lower than blue collar? <laughs> who, no do, who who do blue collar people look down upon? No collar. Let's get him. I'm not. I got an ice cube T-shirt on. I got no collar. But yeah, we have a great episode today. I don't know whether or not Dave and Dante are going to be here. Dante said, "Let's make the episode later so I can watch the NBA finals." So who knows? Who, who fucking knows? Fred, let's go, you fat pussies. <laughs> God knows what Dave's doing. Dave's probably like, I'm on my ninth dinner of the night. Better fucking watch South Park again oh, and fall asleep. Fucking dog walker or whatever. Jesus Christ. I'm in a hater-ass mood today. I'm not going to lie. We're going to get into some music stuff before the interview. Why are you in such a bad mood? I'm in a hater-ass mood, dude. I got a couple of reasons. One, I had a terrible technical day. Oh, yeah. Terrible technical day. My interface shit out. I had to go get a new one, which they kind of just swapped for me. Uh, I don't have the right XLR for the new microphone. We're upgrading shit. We you're are holding We're, your new microphone while holding. The there's a, yeah, I'm going to put the clip up of this. I have the new microphone that doesn't work right now. And I have the old microphone in my goddamn hand. Cause I already swapped the clips out. <laughs> Two I'm microphones a, in, and a turntable. I'm usually the positive one here, but um, no, you're not. Yes, I am. No, he is. He is. He is. He's a I'm positive. But he's also got, he never gives up a little bit of the hate. Dante is the fucking positive one. <laughs> I don't believe it though. You know no, what I we've mean? We've discussed this before. Dante appears very positive. <laughs> appears. <laughs> he does yeah. a good job of appearing. There's a quiet, quiet explosion waiting to happen. 
But it is funny. He did a good job of appearing, except on this podcast. He'll never <laughs> appear on this podcast again. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, but yeah, we do have some music news to get into. I want to start. Well, first off, I just want to say this. Spent the Tuesday night in the studio with the band. Recorded in a way that I've never recorded before. And also already have a feature on it from my childhood hero. Recorded it correctly with talent and skill? Yeah, no, that's every time, jerk off. What I did this time was I wanted to capture the idea of like a voice memo demo, but live. Because I really love the demo of the song. So literally six, seven mics in a room like all kind of set around. And did it like I did like four takes and took the best take. No fucking overdubbing, nothing. Just one vocal take all the way through playing the acoustic guitar while I'm doing it. It sounds so fucking cool. Oh, man, I'm, I'd love to judge that. Oh, dude, I can't <laughs> wait for you to judge it. You think I give a fuck? Dude, I'm, I'm, I'm with Colin on this one because that is underrated. Just yeah. fucking recording music with no click track, with okay. no, like, doing it again. I mean, you can do it again because we're not, it's not like we're in the 40s and tape's really expensive. But <laughs> there's something about, I, there's a song I'm working on that I only want to record in that way and I can't sing it yet. So I know yeah. I've got like six months worth of just like turn on the mics, see if I can get it today. Nope. Try it again. But when I get it, it's going to be one take and there's something magical about one take. Dude, oh, the luxury it, of recording something for six months. Take. Oh, yeah. I don't do that. I, 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 I go in there for one day. I, will and say, I, the just out. Did, um, I just worked with a band called Arlo, A-R-R-L-O from Vegas. They're kind of up and coming. Um, and we tracked the bass player and the drummer together. Which is the mm. first time I've done that in a long time. Which is not a I love that. thing to do. It's a very normal we do thing that. To do. But over the course of the last five years, like I've really done it twice. You know what I mean? Because it's easier the other way. But I realized from talking to you guys that we record in a very old fashioned style. Like we we go in and do bass and drums together, and then the guitar. Like and also we don't do we don't like sit around with like synths and stuff and. We're pretty old school in the way we do it. We we do pre-production and we bang it out and then we try and get it as live as humanly possible. It's so organic. Which, yeah. Dude, speaking dude of, I'll tell you what. My uh, my dad's been going through old. He has uh, two inch tapes. You know, like uh, the old yeah. tape machines. He's been converting them, like digitizing them, and he's been sending us clips of some of the old songs he was working on. And fucking god damn it tape does sound better and i really hate having to admit that because now i'm gonna have to think about should we because he's got the machines so like we could what do you got put them in the studio and, and tra so at least expensive. track that way it's so he's expensive. got tape he's got tape he has like I had to literally take a 150 tapes calibration in college really it sucked yeah yeah no i i we've never done it to, i would love to work to tape because so i good. Everybody knows that tape and vinyl and everything old sounds better. It's That's the way I reference it to everybody. I'm like, just listen to the difference between like a CD and vinyl. And there you go. You have and the weird thing is like, he's sending us MP3s that we're listening to on a phone and it still sounds better. Do you know what I mean? Like if the source material is good, it sounds better. But I say there I are fuck good that. Tape emulators. Obviously tape is yeah. the gold standard, but sure. all that Steven Slate tape emulator stuff is, and the UAD stuff is pretty well, you know what they do now? I believe there's a way you can run through the tapes and it goes straight off the tapes into Pro Tools or whatever. So you get the sound and then you don't have to work on tape because it's inconvenient for like it's wild. You, be, you have to yeah. learn how to fucking cut it and shit like that. Like yeah. it is a pain in the ass. But yeah. it, it the tape conversation actually leads to something interesting because I think I'm starting to see a little bit of a, a cultural shift here. And it's more or less into... 
away from I think like rap is a little bit oversaturated right now. And I think people are kind of moving away from more of like the overplayed shit. And like I bring this up because Zach Bryan, the American artist, country artist who's like taking over the world, it is sold out two nights at Wells Fargo Center in Philadelphia. That's 20,000 people a night. And I saw the videos and people were legitimately screaming the words of his song. A dude from Oklahoma who plays country music. Like, I, there is a weird connection, like, a thing happening right now where people are, like, is this shift happening away from what we thought was hot and is now, like, changing back? I don't know. I think what happened is, like, hip-hop started to make its way into country. And as much mm. as I love hip-hop, that blending that started to happen in the last couple of years, I'm not going to say any specific artist names, but you know who I'm talking about. Lil Nas is, X? No, no, that's that wasn't even, like, country. That was just, like, a kind of a a meme song i'm talking about like there's some country artists that are doing effectively hip-hop oh morgan wallen like, kind of not even him i don't want i don't want to talk shit about specific people talk shit what are we doing here it's this fucking, was a hater uh, episode dirty texans man that's the best that's the worst <laughs> shit i ever heard in my entire life get the boots on <laughs> no you know what i'm talking about there's it was just like country's always 20 years behind things well, yeah. has been. I'm not, I'm not talking about like real country. I'm talking about like pop country. Sure. And so hip hop eventually made its way into country and that shit was just terrible. So now I think you're right. <laughs> there is a bit of a fucking like throwback and pullback to just like good old Americana, like roots country. Why do people love Sturgill Simpson? Why do people love Tyler Childers? Why do people love Zach yeah. Bryan? But even in like bands, like you're seeing Paramore just sold out MSG last night. Like bands seem to be somehow making a comeback. Maybe it was they the nostalgia. What'd you say? Did they bring out on stage? Lil Uzi Vert. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You see that? Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. That's fucking gnarly. That's awesome. Hey, that's actually cool too, because he's a huge like emo fan of like that kind of shit. But Blink is now back on tour and selling out stadiums. Like, you know what though? Like Paramore is such a good example of taking the right amount of time off. Yes. You know what I mean? To like because they weren't doing MSG before. Like the right amount of time off. Well done. Yeah. 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 Well, then also culture called up to them because then Olivia Rodrigo and acts like that. Billie Eilish started citing right. Haley Williams as their inspiration. Yeah. And, and now like, it's a whole. <laughs> she's like, actually, Olivia Rodrigo, give me the money because you I fucking can actually ripped off sing. Money. <laughs> Dude, she's so talented. Oh, she's you know how much I love Paramore? They turned down the podcast and I still. I didn't tell you that, did I? Get them. No, I didn't. They turned us down. I know, but get them anyway. You know what I mean? Keep trying. I don't think it can happen. I'll explain to you why off air. <laughs> I'm still going to try to get Joe Troman. I'll say that here and now on this podcast from following. Knocking out the box, dude. No, we should do that. That would be fire. But I don't I, 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 I've just been hype on a lot of like, I don't know, roots. Like Ryan Bingham, I've been saying it for weeks. Like the reason why I went in there and I, I didn't mind hearing my voice crack a little bit at certain parts or not hitting a perfect note in this new song that we were working on because I've been listening to Ryan Bingham. I'm like, why is this shit so good? Half the notes he sings are wrong. Yeah, perfect. it doesn't matter. People believe it. That's what matters. Wrong That's, notes on purpose is the best thing in the whole. Have I, you ever I, listened I, to any David Bowie song ever? Yeah, Max in one of our last songs said something about singing out of tune, and the word tune was just like a couple cents flat on purpose. Like it's so good. That's what's so yeah. That's what's so funny about Max is he always pretends, kind of like you also, Kenny. Pretend like you're like, oh, I only know three chords. I'm not yeah. a great musician. And then you do a fucking session with Max. And like, dude, that motherfucker is a professional. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. he yeah. can fucking hit it exactly where he wants to hit it. 
it's crazy when I was recording with Max all the time, I would basically build out, we did shit backwards. Talk about recording styles. I would write almost an entire musical bed track. And then he would come in and put lyrics and melody to those sections. And sometimes things would get switched around, but like, that's a far cry from him sitting with a guitar, writing a song. Yeah. Um, but he'd write an entire song on his notes app on the couch while I was working. They'd be like, all right, I'm ready. And he'd go in there, just first pre chorus, just nail it every time. Dude, you know what we didn't talk about yet? I don't know if you guys saw this. We have a real problem with our, our heralded leaders falling. Uh, I don't know. Obviously, <laughs> old old Joey Bag of Donuts, our president, Joe, Joe yeah. Biden, fell again on stage today. Yeah, well, in, front, in front of the army. Like, who put that just like the least. This is just like the worst place to fall ever is in front of the army. Uh, but Bruce Springsteen fell on stage. Yeah. Bruce yeah. Springsteen fell on stage. He went all the way down, too, to the floor. Oh, yeah, he went but down, the, down. Dude, uh, the difference between those two clips is the Bruce Springsteen one looks like, oh, whoops, Bruce Springsteen <laughs> fell. The other one looks like, come on, dude. Come on, dog. What are we, we doing? How, there's got to be an age limit set. I don't care about left, right, any of that shit, but like, it well, shouldn't is that, be. Is that four falls for all? Oh, Jim? it's more than that, dude. Yeah, like it's two, more than two that. airplanes, the bike fall. This one, dude. I want the someone to Photoshop a skateboard. Memes <laughs> that came out of that bike fall. Oh, outstanding! Internet we've had in ten years. Do you realize how fucking detached we are from reality that the president falls like that, and we're just like, ah, all right, that's cool. I want someone to fucking Photoshop a skateboard under his feet. <laughs> like I think it'll be banging. I think a surfboard, like a kook slam sort of thing, would be funny. <laughs> <laughs> dude oh, man we live in a fucking weird time dude but no that was my my number one thing i had i had to discuss the springsteen took a tumble made me sad dude it was like watching my dad fall i it broke my goddamn heart it did i know this is this is a slow week for music no no i know what you're saying but like I, that it just looked that one just looked like he actually just like fucking tripped like it didn't look i know what you're saying about him like seem like he's getting older and you're like it's a sad thing but like it didn't seem like that to me he was least. going up steps wasn't he like up the stage like from like the crowd area back yeah there. it would have been way sicker if he would have like fell but then fell into like a like a right dance kind of a move where he's like spinning on his back like he's like, yeah, like oops, sorry yeah Dude, exactly. as someone as someone who never really knew bruce springsteen and that like the east street band as like definitely not as much as you I literally only knew the guitar player from The Sopranos as, uh, what's his name? Little Steve. Oh, as, Silvio Dante. Yes, yeah, Sal. Oh, Silvio, yeah. Silvio Dante. Uh, yes. Oh, it was, so it's been so hard for me to watch clips of the band. Like, I literally can't just get it out of my head that he was a musician, like, first. I I'm, feel like I'm just watching a mobster actor who's sitting in with Bruce Springsteen. It's very weird for me because I didn't know it beforehand. He still sounds exactly like Silvio Dante. The only difference is he dresses like a pirate. Yeah. In real life, he dresses like a pirate. By the way. Uh, speaking of I, pirates, I forget who. Uh, <laughs> it was some comedian made this joke that every year Johnny Depp looks more and more like Steven Tyler's microphone stand. Facts, dude. <laughs> Facts, dude. That's not my joke. I forget who the comedian was that That's said it. It was fucking, fucking hysterical. Incredible. Dude, we didn't even fucking mention. Happy Pride Month to all who celebrate, especially <laughs> Kenny's fighter pilot dad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you would have never been able to tell when he was in his white Navy uniform in front of his topless Corvette. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> I, Kenny had a nice message for everybody, and this goes doubly for me because I whoop some ass, too. You, I catch you out of pocket online saying anything during Pride Month, dude. Listen, we're calling we the boys not, up. We are, we are not that podcast, but it has gone. <laughs> That's what I'm going, saying. It's going too far 
to where it's they're like going after just straight up gay people calling them child molesters and that enough is a fucking nothing. yeah that's not cool with me yeah. i'm all for jokes i think jokes are funny but dude there's a deep deep dark part of twitter where it's just like everything everything on my algorithm comes up i don't know why it gets fed to me it's like boycott target because colin's following all the fucking <laughs> like, super right wing like <laughs> yeah i don't click on things that i like i click on things that i don't like to see right. what yeah. things. No. So my whole feed is a shit that pisses me right the fuck the, off the reason why my shit's all fucked up is because the things that get suggested to me are these like conservative talking points and it's just a comment underneath of kenny being like yo you're a fucking loser <laughs> <No>. <laughs> time, somebody's dude. like i just don't believe in gay people i go believe <laughs> what do you mean to say like dinosaurs right oh there. my god dude i'm so tired of like every day like it's like yeah target uh fucking anheuser yeah. bush like shut up you losers dude you see like again yeah we're not that podcast but to me what's so fucked up about all of this is that this is actually indicative of beyond just like stupid hate which is like always existed and has always been shit it's yeah. like what the algorithm is picking up on and what it like this this vicious cycle of feeding this shit to people and living off of hate it's just such a fucking cesspool most of the internet now i still believe to the core of my bones that the majority of people are somewhere in the center leaning one way or the other like sure but the extreme crazy shit that people say that gets commented on even just to say that it's crazy yeah dude you know what it's like when you've been on the road you you meet like thousands of people in every walk of life all around the country all around the world and i've never met the percentage of pieces of shit that exist on the internet and you could say maybe they're hiding in real life but i don't actually think that's the case a lot of times i think it's like this fake thing that people put on because it's the only thing that draws eyeballs that's it it is both both sides it's both half the like massive followers followings on twitter's like whatever side it's on just says the most insane shit and i'm like i know you're saying shit for clicks it's so crazy bro do you ever follow uh nick adams he's like an australian guy who like is is the alpha male guy yeah dude oh my god dude it's the dude he, but he's trolling. A, he's trolling right if like, he's a comedian he's, he's funny that's a plus for comedy you know oh I mean? absolutely he is yeah. dude and the funniest part is everything's about like america this america that and like how to be an alpha male and like yeah. all this shit he's like i don't wear shorts like it's a it's a beta move a polo and he's like alpha male he's like kind of chubby just oh like- my god dude he's like he's all about hooters <laughs> <laughs> he's all about hooters he's like He's like beta males won't go to Hooters. But is that God? He's trolling. He has. Oh, to. he has to be. Have... If he is, dude, get him on stage somewhere. He's hilarious. Yeah. Dude, I know I was just complaining about the algorithm, but you guys are gonna send me this shit because honestly, I only follow like half my accounts. I only follow shit that is just ridiculous. <laughs> like not not bad stuff, but I just follow like these motivational speaker type of people. Oh, they're my, my least Instagram favorite account. people on earth. And it, I just, I can't stop watching it. And then the fucking thousands of comments of, of like, it's just, it blows my mind. So this Nick Adams guy seems amazing. Oh, oh dude, it's one of the his shit. He's incredible. The fake AI photos he posts of like Trump and says like alpha male. It's <laughs> fucking absolutely incredible. It's you really. Know, wait, so, be, remember when Trump did the NFTs and they were like him on the moon and shit yeah, like that? Yeah. What were you talking about musical NFTs before we started? Oh, well, <laughs> we were like, what is there to talk about music? And I was like, oh, well, I went to the bank today and the teller was like, Hey, how excited are you for NFT fucking or musical NFTs? Because like, like a musician, and I was like, bro, I, was like, I don't fucking know, dude. I don't care. Give me my money. 
You know how excited I am for fucking robot bank tellers, so you don't have to ask me dumbass questions like <laughs> like you know, like fucking I've gotten this much in crypto, so he's oh, all oh god Jesus Christ. Snake oil salesman. Um damn, what the fuck was I gonna talk about? It's funny because we're about to go into a great interview. We have just absolutely nothing to t- like what are we gonna talk about? Taylor Swift again? I'm not gonna talk about Taylor Swift again. I thought Aaron Rodgers was fucking jamming out hard at the Taylor Swift concert. Did you see that Dante's going to Taylor Swift by himself? Oh yeah. He needs to defend himself. Cause he dude, if he's if he's not here because he's watching the NBA finals and we he missed this conversation, I'm besought. He's watching the finals without yo. Should I call him? Yeah, call him. I'm gonna call him. Facetime him. <laughs> <laughs> I think. By the way, I only I only Facetime people now. I never call anybody. Dude, That's I cool. fucking hate Facetime I so know, much. I know, and it's so good. That's why I do it. All right, I'm I'm calling him right now. <laughs> <laughs> How much money do you think he put down on, on the, the game? Oh, I didn't even think about that angle. Yeah. Who's playing? The Heat Nuggets. <laughs> Nuggets first time in finals in franchise history. Dante goes to me. Yeah. Oh, I didn't even think about the gambling aspect. Oh, yeah, dude. Him and Dave are in deep, I'm sure. So is my brother-in-law. And if you're listening, you fucking degenerate bitch. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a voice that I have. You know that I won a trip to Mexico playing online poker. What? <laughs> really? Yeah. And I had to give it to Ben, the 10 fucking stiller from Cannons. Oh, really? <laughs> dude, so they are, but yeah. They are killing it. I know they are truly yeah. killing it. I know. I'm so pumped, man. We I haven't. I'm so pumped for fucking Sweet Pea. He's he's the guitar player in Eve Six and the manager of Cannons and a couple other acts. And like, there's nobody more deserving in the whole world to me than Sweet Pea. I fucking love that guy. Yeah, he's a good dude. Yeah. I uh, I don't know we why smoke, do. we smoke cigars with him every now and then. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah. Both in Austin. Oh man. I, Dude. I think the last time I saw Sweepy was when we went to Guantanamo Bay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's Bro. hear that story. <laughs> no, they so they, Eve, Eve Six used to do these one-off shows. I'm sure they still do, but like they'd ask me if I wanted a guitar tech. I had nowhere better to be than to fly around the country with them just fucking because for- You were teching? I was dude, I was teching because it was it was just my friends. We had we were smoking cigars and having a good time. They always said like I would tune Max's guitar wrong. Like I saw <laughs> the worst tech, and they they'd always be like, "Kenny, you're not the best tech, but you're my favorite tech." <laughs> anyway, one time they did a show at Guantanamo Bay, and we flew military jet from Miami down to fucking Cuba or whatever. It was a trip. Were you playing for prisoners? No, there no. There's for the for the military based on there. Oh. I, I thought you meant like actually like they you ever seen fucking Harold and Kumar too? They did you ever take seen Harold tour and to see you ever seen Harold and you ever seen Harold and Kumar too when what? they go to Guantanamo Bay? Harold and Kumar too. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So they good. go to eat okay. the cock meat sandwich from Big Bob. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh shit, I remember the one thing I want to talk about before getting the interview. Have you guys seen this stuff? So Maddie Healy, the singer in the nineteen seventy five, yeah. who I like. I like the nineteen seventy five. Like I have no problem admitting that. Some people think they suck. I They're like a really good B plus band. Agreed, and they don't deserve to be the biggest band in the world, but like they are a good band. They make interesting music to me. Um, he's had a run in with two different people. Noel Gallagher eviscerated this fucking dude. I don't know if you saw this online the other day. NME asked Noel Gallagher because Matt Healy came out in an interview recently and was like, "If you're Noel Gallagher, what are you waiting for? You're the biggest band oh, I in the that, yeah." Yeah. And then Noel Gallagher was like, why don't you tell that fuck that, that fucking twit to make his band less shitty before he talks about my band? <laughs> Which is a baller-ass response. I love him. Yes. Yeah, Absolutely. that's 
I love that. Well, so no, I saw some. So now him and Taylor Swift are dating, right? He went on. Do you know who Adam Freeland is? They do uh, Come Town, the podcast. Sounds familiar. Mm-hmm. It's a wild podcast. It's like they they're like edge lords. They say like just the craziest shit. But now he has his own show, and randomly Matt Healy was on it. Like these two worlds should never collide. This is like dark podcast humor, and then a dude from like a very poppy band. And he went on. It was actually pretty funny. And but he they were making some like it's a comedy podcast first off. But he was saying some wild shit about Ice Spice. You know the singer Ice Spice, the rapper. And people started losing their fucking minds. Like, just not realizing it's a comedy podcast. Like, you know what I mean? Like, they take everything as gospel that he's saying or whatever. And then people started getting mad at Taylor Swift for dating Maddie Healy because he's saying wild shit. And all her fans are, like, the most, like, fucking everybody has to be perfect kind of people. You know what I mean? Like, the first people to jump down anybody's started, they say anything wild. And uh, an article came out today that was, like, maybe we should stop judging our celebrities based upon everything that they say, or if they mess up, maybe we should give them more credence. And it made me think like, so all it took to end cancel culture was if Taylor Swift did something wrong. That's yeah. all it took. Yeah. It literally just took until like the one person who can't get in trouble. Do you, is- think, do you think that with Taylor Swift's fandom, that if she ran for president, she would win? Yes, I do 150%. Well, no, cause I don't think most of her fans are old enough to vote. True. You know what I mean? Like, Dude, I don't think, I, if uh, like middle school election, absolutely, hundred <laughs> percent. On the presidential front with Taylor Swift, can you imagine dating her? Just just from that aspect of it, like it would actually be like dating a president. Yeah, it's not because worth- it's like you got everything you say and do is going to be put under that microscope of her like PR team, which I know allegedly, according to Dante, she doesn't have. Doesn't one. exist. Yeah, yeah. blow me. <laughs> Blow me. Get out of here. Hey, there's somebody there. Doesn't have a PR team, dude. She got a PR army. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> but it did make me laugh, though, because it's just like, like, I just imagine this, like, journalist sitting behind their keyboard being like, I can't say anything bad about Taylor Swift. Maybe we should be nicer to people because sometimes they're wrong. Click. And it's like, oh, no shit. Maybe the other 8 million times we got mad at people for saying something wild. Like, I don't know. Like, it's fucking I, wild. I mean, like, let's go conspiracy on. I think there's it's some kind of like Nashville mafia thing that you can't mm. you can't cross them. <laughs> they got far far reaching uh, rhinestone belts that come catch you or something. If there was a if there was a musical Illuminati, what would the lineup be? Like Taylor Swift might be at the head of the table right now. It'd be Jay Z. It'd be Taylor Swift. Mm-hmm. Kanye got kicked out and he's pissed about it. Right. Yeah. Now he's the like he's like the dark. Like Lord of the Illuminati, he's Kenny on the outside. Rogers is in there. Kenny Rogers. I was gonna say Dolly Parton. Dolly I Parton. Think would Ka- DJ in there. Khaled is in there, like the yep. George Bush character, <laughs> like the just the yeah. dumb, the dumb one who they like let in because he's kind of fun. <laughs> oh my god! Like, like they're in an Illuminati, they're in an Illuminati meeting, and they're like, "We must do this." And DJ Khaled's in the corner, like, "Well, I have an idea too." And like, shut the fuck up, Khaled. Dude, that dance I- that he does in the song. <laughs> have you seen his obsession with golf now? Yes, dude. No. Don't ruin golf for me, please. I love <laughs> dude, golf. Dude, I swear to God, I say this every couple of weeks. I keep liking him more and more. He, yeah. He's just, he's too funny. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. think so. Right now, our Illuminati lineup is Taylor Swift, Jay-Z and Beyonce, Dolly Parton, DJ Khaled. Kenny, <laughs> is there Ro- any- Kenny Rogers, of course, the gambler. Um, Like, is there anybody where, like, blatantly, like, would Paul, Mc- I, I don't think Paul McCartney's in it. The ghost of Kurt Cobain. <laughs> <laughs> Kurt Cobain's rotting corpse. <laughs> no, you got it. It's got to be people that are like 
have got that power hungry vibe to them, you know. Jared Leto. Jared Leto has to be in no, there. No, he's not. They he, he tried to be in there. He oh, yeah. tried. They kicked him out. Yeah, just like this guy. In. They rejected. Yeah, him. because he showed up in like an eyes wide shut mask. Like this is what we're supposed to be doing, right? He's and they're like, like a, uh, two on the nose. Yeah, really. Two try it's a hard, too Jared. Yeah, exactly. Get out <laughs> You're of here. gonna give us away, you bitch. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's enough fucking music news. Uh, let's go into our interview with uh, Counting Crows, Adam Duritz. Before we do, just want to once again remind you of our sponsor, ProtectLink. Yeah. Now, once again, I yeah. did the official one earlier. This is more of the off-the-cuff one. Yeah. Picture this. Yeah. You're somewhere on a dark road. Uh-huh. You've just eaten three taquitos from 7-Eleven. Okay. Hands are greasy. Ew. You go to reach for your phone. Yep. Slips out. Hits a rock. You're stranded. Fuck. The night comes. The day arrives. Someone finally comes to you and gets you to safety. Mm. And you take your busted up phone to the T-Mobile around the corner. And you say, I've had one hell of a night. Yeah. I need this fixed. And they're like, that'll be $275. And you go, if only I had fucking protect link. (laughs) I wouldn't have to deal with this. Month to month coverage. Yeah. Think about this. Yeah. Automobile. RV. Yeah. Something goes wrong. It always does. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, fucking, you know, it's basically a money pit. Yeah. That money pit with four wheels, your car, you're fucked. Yeah. You don't have protect link. Uh-oh. All of a sudden. <laughs> that po- okay, okay. That, that's coming Kenny's out of your pocket. The, Kenny's, Kenny's the hype, the hype man. <laughs> that's coming out of your pocket. Yeah. But not if you use promo code Kenny sucks oh, with protect link. Mm. Seven day free trial. <laughs> protect link. Now, listen, this is a real thing. We all just got ProtectLink. I'm one of the dumbest motherfuckers alive when it comes to electronics. I break my shit constantly. I need this. Yeah. I need it bad. My shit's cracked right now. You know what I'm going to use? ProtectLink. <laughs> That's not even a fucking joke. My shit's cracked. <laughs> you don't want to go on a job interview or a date, and your dumbass has a cracked phone and looking at you going, what the fuck is wrong with you? You don't have ProtectLink? Yeah. What are you, poor? <laughs> what, are you, what are you, an idiot? What are you, poor? Get it. ProtectLink. The trusted name in warranties. Yeah. This is Another our interview. One. Another one. Oh, what? Don't <laughs> fucking do DJ Khaled. All right. This is our interview with the one, the only, Adam Duritz. All right, ladies and gentlemen, on the guest list this week, we have a true living legend, one of the most underrated and underappreciated songwriters of the last 30 years, the lead singer of Counting Crows, Mr. Adam Duritz. Adam, how are you, buddy? Thank you. Woo! <laughs> I tried. Was that a little heavy for the intro right there? No, it was good. It was strong. I liked it. You're like, it was honest because it is true. Yeah. Dude, I've always been such a big fan of your songwriting, and I want to get into that in a minute. But I was like listening to the first record today while I was driving, and I was like, there are so many hints of like Seeger and like the band in there. And like, do you think that that got lost within like being like the pop rock boom of the 90s? Like, just how like kind of Americana and honest the songwriting was? Uh, I don't know. I mean, people liked it a lot. Yeah, they uh, did. So, you know, I don't feel like they missed much on that record because everybody <laughs> seemed to listen to it. Uh, I, I don't know what particular they were digging from it, but they, they dug deep. I feel like there's stuff that got missed on other records, but that one, I feel like, you know, it's in everybody's consciousness. I mean, it's starting with Round Here and this, the, the stepped out the front door like a ghost into a fog where no one notices the contrast of white on white. It's such a fucking heavy lyric for such a big pop hit. I'm deep. 
<laughs> He's a deep yeah, guy, man. One of us. <laughs> yeah, he is one of us, dude. This is going to be a fun conversation. I can tell right off the top. And when speaking of one of us, once again, doing my research, I'm a bartender and trying to live the rock star lifestyle. And when I was watching the Rogan interview, you went over how you were bartending the Viper Room after the first record came out. Can you please go over that story for me? Well, I just, uh, I didn't really know many people in LA, uh, but I did know the people running the Viper Room and, and the people working there because I hung out there a few times. And uh, I'd gotten to be pretty good friends with those guys. And, you know, after, after a year and a half of touring our first record, the Bay Area was kind of unlivable. There were people camped out on my lawn. It just seemed to kind of be an issue wherever I went. And mm. I was having a bad time. I'd been home for about a week. Maybe, yeah, about a week. And it was kind of a pain in the ass. And I got a phone call from uh, Sal Janko and Johnny Depp one day. Uh, and they could tell I wasn't in a great mood. And so they stopped what they were calling me about. And they asked what was going on. And I kind of told them. And, uh, and they put me on hold. I sat there for a while, like about five minutes later, they came back and they said, all right, you got a, a reservation on like the seven o'clock flight out of Oakland to Burbank. We got you a room at the Bellage. Uh, we're throwing a party. The club's closed tonight. We're throwing a party for Kate Moss's 21st birthday. We were calling to invite you, but you got to get the hell out of there. Come down here and we'll figure it all out. And so I, all right, yeah, shit. I got on a plane. I went to LA and I kind of never went home again. <laughs> I ended up moving to LA, but I mean, they kind of made it easy for me to like actually leave home and, and move. They just made it great, you know? And I, so it was the only place I knew people. So I would hang out there every night and it was less crowded on that side of the bar than out on the other side. And so I would end up sitting there anyways. My friends were all the bartenders. Eventually I started helping out and <laughs> eventually I just started doing it every night. You know, I made great tips for them. Were you on the schedule? No, I was there every (laughs) night, though. And pretty much every night I would go work bartending. I made great tips for everybody. And uh, I mean, it wasn't anything official. I wasn't I wasn't getting paid. I was just doing it. I needed a place to chill out, though. And like I said, it was less crowded on that side of the bar. You know, I love the fact that I'm trying so hard to get out from behind the bar. And you're like, fuck, please put me behind the bar. I need this. It was cool for a while, though. It really gave me like a, a refuge at a time when like the world had just sort of turned upside down on me. And I was like, I, I didn't know how to deal with being really, really famous all of a sudden. It was a lot, you know. And here was a place where it didn't matter. Like, it was just cool. I was OK to be me. and Everybody treated me like a regular person. And a lot of them were, you know, more famous than me. So it wasn't that big a deal. You know, there were just a lot of really interesting people running around that joint. That's one of the cool, I mean, for all of its flaws, that's one of the cool things about LA that you can kind of be somebody and for the most part, anybody in the same field or world will just like, what's up, dude? You know, very normal. Yeah, it was kind of cool. I, I think I came from a a struggling artist town, which had been great, you know, when I was one, but they weren't very happy with me being a successful artist. And it was kind of great to go to a working artist town where everyone was just interested in and working and doing their job and not obsessed with, well, you're a sellout or you're a sellout or, you know, whatever, all this bullshit about like, you know, not being happy for the next door neighbor who made it, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was just kind of great to be in a place where everyone was just kind of working and not thinking about that crap. Mm-hmm. There is that give and take. I feel like where it's like, you want to be the person who stuck around and stayed in your town and made it, but then 
did you did you get shit from your hometown of people being like, oh, you sold out, you have a hit record, you're making all this money oh, yeah. and fame and shit? People gave you shit for that? For a little while. I mean, at first, that's kind of one of the reasons it was a pain in the ass coming home from tour. I mean, I would say 90% of it was people who were just like happy, but you still couldn't go anywhere. But then there were people who were just like really, really pissed off about it. Enough of them that it started to feel like, I'm not really enjoying this. But the main thing was that it was an issue everywhere like good or bad it was just too much attention yeah like i just needed to get the fuck out of there i mean there were people camped out on our lawn that was not cool no that sounds terrible that sounds like when we were yeah. talking to duddy b from the dirty heads and people were putting cactuses on his porch because they found out he likes cactuses remember that kenny yeah. <laughs> yeah dude people get crazy crazy the gifts we would receive like from people with like, like i got a little like box that somebody gave me and it had a picture of like my face and my wife's face and my dog's face. Oh, there's like no. it's crazy i wanted and people used to always give us um treats like cupcakes snacks or whatever and i went to go eat the first one and my tour manager like slaps it out of my hand and he goes you can't eat that shit man <laughs> yeah i mean whether it's a nice gift or not it feels a little weird to have them show up on your porch yeah that's you know, it's like get get the hell off my porch be respectful you know yeah it's the one place yeah, i can just hang gift. out yeah yeah. Did it happen Weird. quickly for you guys? Like, did, did Counting Crows, like, take off quickly? Or was this, like, you guys struggled in your hometown, busted your ass? Or was this just, like, from the jump, onset, it's on? No, I've been in the clubs, you know, for about 10 years. Wow. Uh, maybe, I mean, I don't know where you measure it from, you know, from when I started writing songs. I was 27 the first time anyone from any record company came to see a band I was in. I was 28 when we got signed. Uh, and I was 29 when the first record came out. Wow. So it was, you know, it wasn't, we weren't kids anymore at that point. Mm -hmm. Did that help with the transition or did that hurt? Like the fact that you had lived a life prior to becoming famous? Oh, it probably helped because my drug days were behind me. <laughs> um, I, I would have to say that was probably a good thing because uh, they were a bit out of control when I was a kid. Uh, and I enjoyed them greatly. And it's, I, you know, as long as you're a kid, why not go fucking crazy? But uh, that would have, that would not have been the best involvement in adult rock star life. Especially there's nothing cute. There's nothing cute about a 30 year old just getting introduced to cocaine. No. There's nothing. There's no. nothing cute about that. No. Wasn't there a um? Wasn't there a bidding war even before that first record came out, or was that after that first record came out? No, it was before the first record. There was to sign like us. How does that, how do you process that? Like, what's that feeling like? Well, I mean, it was kind of a good feeling in a way because I thought, well, we're going to get a chance, you know, like, because, you know, it's, you spend your life being creative or trying to be an artist, but it doesn't seem like anyone's even going to notice that you exist. So at least, at least at this point, we were going to get to make records. And, mm -hmm. you know, if they're not successful, they're not successful, whatever that, but we were going to get a chance. And so that was a cool thing. Uh, we traded all the money away. Anyways, we got offers from pretty much every record company in existence. Um, the only ones who didn't were the ones where they were like Columbia and Epic, where they're both Sony. And so only one of them, because they don't compete with themselves. But, yeah, yeah. But pretty much every record company offered us deals and there were millions of dollars on the table. Uh, and we traded it all away. We, we signed to Geffen. Uh, I think my... My advance that I took home was three thousand bucks. No shit. Um, because so it was fifteen thousand for all five of us. Uh, but we we traded all the upfront money away for uh, higher royalties, which is yeah. better, anyways. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
complete creative control. Wow. We had complete creative control. We had higher royalties and we had three guaranteed records. And did so, they try to push know, back on that, on the creative control? And how often, what? That, did, how often do record companies push back on creative control? Oh, I think they push back on it every day for all bands. And in any, and they could have done it with us too, because you can, you can fudge what creative control is. You could say, yeah, you could do whatever you want, but, but the consequences are this, 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 and you know what I mean? Like they, yeah, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. They could pull that shit, but that never really happened because, I mean, we were pretty successful right out of the, right. our first record sold 10 million copies. So, you know, that after that, we weren't listening to anybody. Hey, if I could tell you yeah. something crazy that, after my live music days, getting into the producing days, the amount of times I'm communicating with an A&R person over what the record needs instead of the band, which a lot of times is for up and coming bands, but like it, it happens and it happens a lot. Oh yeah. It's, it's the land of dumb advice. Yes. Yeah. Word for yeah. a third. Yeah. When you, uh, like, so you guys did have creative control, but when you drop the record off to the label in that first record, of course, there's a lot of wordy songs on there. There's not like, did they know that there were hits or were they kind of like, we'll just see what happens here. Oh, I don't know if they knew that they were hits, but they loved it. All right, good. I mean, I don't think anybody knows when you get hits right. uh, and the ones that people thought were hits weren't the ones that were hits, but That's how it always goes, but they, I mean, you know, Geffen was also kind of a boutique label. Uh, the guy that signed us had signed us, Nirvana, Sonic youth, the Sundays, the posies, uh, Good track record. Teenage fan club. It was a lot of uh, Peter Gabriel, uh, Ricky Lee Jones, Maria McKee. It was a lot of, you know, indie rock and also just kind of arty rock bands. So mm -hmm. there, there was, you know, they, they were into what we did and, and even more into it when we made the first record. And it turned out to be a lot better than what we had done before. You know, our was way better than our demos had been. Um, and they were thrilled. They got that first record. They were really fucking excited. They thought it was great. But, you know, the, it was very much an indie record label. You were hoping to sell a couple hundred thousand copies and make a good first impression. Nobody was expecting, you know, us and Nirvana to do what we did, you know, to blow up like that. I mean, I remember when that happened. I, I knew those guys because the same guy signed both of us and Kurt and I were like his younger brother, his little brothers, you know. And, you know, I think they thought, we were great bands and in a lot of ways the future, but you know, I think they were more comfortable with what the posies and, and teenage fan club were doing where they're getting good reviews and they did pretty well. Few, you know, they sold some hundred thousand, 400,000, 500,000 copies maybe or less. That would have been cool for a first record. And you build a career like, you know, like, like REM was probably the model for mm -hmm. bands that like built a, a career that was kind of indestructible after a while, but they came up like an indie band. And that's how they looked at us. It's just that after a while, it went through the fucking roof. I have some, were you, one sec, sorry. One of my most specific, like earliest memories, I was born in 88, late 88. So basically 89 uh, when Mr. Jones came out and, and the whole record uh, uh, August and my dad would literally on the presets on, we had a big ass conversion van um, on the presets of each on the buttons, he would push it and he'd be like, all right, give it two minutes. Mr. Jones will be playing two minutes, Mr. Jones. And he would like be able to call it. It was the first song I ever learned start to finish verbatim word for word. 
in 93 or 94 as a four or five year old kid or whatever it wow. yeah it was weird you know mr jones was a pretty big hit on the radio uh but it wasn't doing anything like the record wasn't even in the top 200 it hadn't moved really that and then shocks me we played saturday night live uh like somewhere the second week of january 94 and we played around here mm. and then uh the record jumped 40 spots a week for five five weeks six weeks and we ended up at number two for the next two years basically jesus mm -hmm. but it was like mr jones sort of set it up in a way where everyone's like, oh this is a kind of a cool pop band everybody likes this song it's it's kind of a groovy song and then we went on the on the tv and played around here and people went oh shit i love right. this band and yeah. then then our career took off you know we played around here again on letterman a couple months later and, and it went it was through the roof like the record just you know next thing we know we're on the cover of rolling stone it had a lot to do with saturday night live and letterman you know because yeah. we like you got to think they booked us on that show and we weren't even a band in the top 200 Right. I feel like yeah. Letterman was great for that. Letterman Letterman got, had his finger on the pulse of a lot of like young bands and gave them shots. Yeah. I'm so stuck to God. Um, I'm curious. I want to geek out for a second. Uh, for like that first record, August. Um, compared to how records are made today, and like one of the last records I made was an anti-flag record I did in 20 days. I'm curious. Was like that record one of those six months processes with three weeks on drums, all recording to tape? Like, was that like? How, what was that process of making that record? It was a long process, but not like that with the drums, you know, where people are trying to get everything perfect on one instrument. It wasn't that. It was that we were trying to figure out what we sounded like. Because our our demos, we had a really good demos, but they kind of sounded like late model Roxy music, like mm -hmm. Avalon era Roxy music. And it was it would, felt like it was going to be dated to me. And I wanted us to kind of learn how to be a band. And so we sort of took everyone's crutches away. Our guitar player was very like Stone Roses influenced with a lot of uh, effects. We took all the effects away. Uh, our drummer was playing this, you know, too many drums kit. We took half the drums away from him. Our bass player was playing these like sort of fretless basses, took them away, got an old Hofner and a Vox. Mm -hmm. We switched from any like synthesizers to just, uh, you know, like accordion, piano and organ. You know, it wasn't because it was we were trying to be some sort of like Americana band. It was just that I wanted us to strip everything away that we were leaning on and just get in a room and learn to play together. And we stood in a circle in this room and we played songs until we got a feeling for what our band was going to be like. And and it took a little while doing that. But it wasn't like, you know, three months of a drum part. It was more like, you know, a couple months of everybody standing in a circle trying to figure out how to do it. You know, yeah. we, we rented this house up in the hills. I was really afraid we'd go into a studio and get real sterile and try to be perfect. Mm -hmm. And I, I, we had sat down with Robbie Robertson at one point and I talked to him about like, wow, I'm really scared about this one thing, you know, that, that we're, it's our first record. You know, every, it's a big deal. I don't want to get in there and try and be perfect because perfect is not the same thing as good. It just, it's, mm -hmm. that's clean and it's not necessary. I want to be great, you know? And he said, well, why don't you just rent a house? That's what we used to do. And then it's like, T-Bone said something like, yeah, studios stink of other people's bad records anyways. <laughs> so uh, we rented this house in in like Brentwood up in the hills. We built a studio in it and, uh, you know, just kind of all lived there together and recorded. Dude, so you basement tapes it. Basically. We did that for every record 
the first record we ever really did in a studio was Saturday nights and Sunday mornings, which is 2007. So like 15 wow. years later, yeah. the first four records were all recorded in houses. Um, Get the fuck out of here. Yeah. After our first record, we kind of bought the gear so we could just like load it in. We had a friend who, we had friends who were carpenters that were, were good at like sort of soundproofing and they just come in and they'd, they'd hook up, you know, soundproof the windows and stuff. And we would just move in together and record, you know? So that first record, that's what we did. Uh, you know, it, the, it was sort of stretched. We got kind of in a in a hole near the end where we were like <laughs> laying tracks with people like for ages. Uh, you know, Bill Dylan, who did a lot of stuff with Daniel Lanois, who was this great guitar yeah. player, but he played a lot of. He had his in instrument he invented called a guitorgan, kind of makes that <laughs> whale sound stuff. That uh, and so Bill Dylan came by and played on something. He loved the record so much. At this point, we'd moved to Ocean Way because we were just doing last overdubbing. He said, "I I don't you." even have to pay me anymore if you just set me up in a studio i'll record stuff on this record all day and i was like oh how cool is that that sounds great it's not until later that you think about no we didn't pay him at all but we did pay for a room at ocean way and an engineer <laughs> for all this time and he laid incredible track after incredible track after incredible track almost none of which we used because that whale sound kind of it was brilliant stuff but it didn't really fit on the record and so when we went to mix, we ended up removing almost all of it, except for he played this one really cool acoustic guitar track, just a plain acoustic guitar track that I think might be on Omaha. Uh, and that we ended up leaving and using, which is just something he came in one time. We were struggling <laughs> with the sound of it. And he said, you know, I don't think that acoustic guitar track is great. Let me just do something. He went in and he played it. And we're like, oh, yeah. And I think after all the in incredible avant-garde stuff he did, the only thing we really used was that acoustic guitar. He said, I've been, I've been sitting in a studio for six months playing the guitar and all you did was use an acoustic guitar. Yeah. Simple, That's like you, you hit your Dewey Cox moment where he's got the army of 50,000 didgeridoos and you had the guitar on your records, yeah. dude. I love that shit. But it is funny because the first record obviously went huge and then the second record, everything afterwards, like you guys are ubiquitous for all that time period. I think my one question is being kind of your your background and what I guess historically I know you love. Were you expecting more of an indie band career or did did the the superstardom take you by kind of surprise? Well, I mean, I don't know if I was expecting anything. I mean, you hope you hope you'll have a career that lasts forever. I mean, nobody dreams of being a rock star for a year and a half and then having everybody <laughs> yawn and forget about you. But that's mostly what happens. You know, bands, if they have any success at all, it lasts a couple of years. And then either they kill each other mm -hmm. or the entire world falls asleep thinking about them. Right. You know, it's just like people's apathy. It's undefeatable in a lot of ways. So, you know, it's like, I think I was hoping to do this for my whole life, but I don't know what I was expecting. Um, I thought the first record was great. I thought like the most important thing to do is just make great records yeah and I, I felt like that pretty much for every record I, I love every one of them I don't have any regrets about the records and that's sort of the important thing but as far as the other stuff I mean there's just no way to know I, I think most of our records are better than the first album for me yeah but the first album is like a cultural moment where everybody fucking loves it and but that's great that's really cool to hear because I was gonna I was gonna ask I didn't know how to word it but I was going to ask him, do you have any regrets now that it's been this long looking back on records? Because if I put out a song on Tuesday, a lot of times I regret it on Thursday. So I'm just, so it was just it's cool to hear that, like, to be proud of a catalog is really special and really cool. And you should be. And that's awesome. 
No, I mean, I love, I mean, I love every song on every record. I think they're the only reason they're on the records is because they're exactly what I wanted them to be, mm-hmm. especially after the first record, where I think there are some things where I sung them, I learned to sing them better later. But yeah. uh, no, I love, the only thing I regret is I got talked into changing the title of a song on our fourth album. I wrote the song called Richard Manuel is Dead. And uh, my manager said, no one will play a song on the radio called Richard Manuel is Dead. And I was like, it's my favorite song on the record, but that's the title. And he had this other title he wanted. To, it ended up being called If I Could Give All My Love or Richard Manuel is Dead, which is stupid. <laughs> and If I Could Give All My Love is has nothing to do with, it's just not a good title for that song. My own, that's the only thing I regret because someone talked me into doing something that I shouldn't do. It's kind of the only time in my career that that happened. Yeah. That was a mistake. And I've heard, I've heard a lot of stories of singers, um, mine included, where like after they record the song, the record's out, they play the song live a hundred times. And now there's a new melody that he's singing in one certain part. He wishes, fuck, I wish I would have sang it that way on the record. But that's just the only time I hear about stuff like that. Well, yeah. I mean, I start. We were talking a few years ago about we should re-record all of our records so that we own the masters, you know, like right. Taylor, Taylor Swift. Yeah. yeah, and the the only problem is I have no idea what the records sound like. I mean, <laughs> I stopped singing them the way they were on the record the first day after the record, and I've been singing them differently every day after that. But I don't. When I go listen to the record, I'm like, oh, that's great. I don't, it's just to me they feel like they're alive, so they change a little every day. So yeah. I I do you know, change and explore them. But I don't look back on the records really, except the first one. There's a few songs where I don't love my singing, but every other time I listen to the other records and I think, Oh yeah, that's really cool. Well, that was a good, that's a nice approach. That feels, that moves me. You know, I, I really like those vocals. I get off listening Mm -hmm. to that stuff. I don't listen to those records very much, but I'm always very pleasantly, you know, Oh, I love that. You know? That's do, awesome. you, do you ever dig back into the old stuff when you're going? Because obviously you just said you kind of ignore those records now. But like when you're going in to cut new stuff or you're working, you're writing, do you kind of reference yourself at all? Or are you trying to find new and creative ways to do it? Oh, sometimes for specific reasons, I'll go listen to stuff. And also because uh, we're always, you know, let's play this. We haven't played it in a while. You know, we we rehearse every day on tour because basically soundcheck is like a moving rehearsal. And so... Right whenever people want to play something, we got to go back, check it out, listen to it. And then, you know, so I'm always listening to stuff off those records because someone will want to play some song. Um, but I don't know if I use it to really reference stuff. Um, I'm not what, sure. What is your reference point? Like if you're going like right now, so say you're going to cut a new record, like what are you listening to now that interests you? Is there anything that jumps out to you? I just got a bunch of Bowie box sets. I want oh, to check out yes. um, th- these new ones. They release width of a circle and, uh, divine symmetry they're like the first three records a bunch of extra stuff i just got those and i got this flaming lips uh Fuck yoshimi yeah. battles the pink Fuck robots yeah. mm-hmm. oh set. hell yeah that's kenny's record right there that's yeah awesome. it my my favorite was actually the soft bulletin and i wish they would do like an expanded uh version of that but uh, i did that and i just got what else did i get just recently that i was checking out uh so wilco uh yankee hotel foxtrot box Always sets good. and the summer teeth one uh so I was kind of going through those. Um, it could be any different stuff. You know, uh, the last couple of weeks, it was a lot of Taylor Swift. No shit. I was a fan of hers when she first started, but I hadn't really listened to much the last like 10 years. Uh, my girlfriend is a huge fan. And uh, so I got us tickets 
her, me, Chris Caraba from Dashboard and his wife and yeah. our guitar player, we all went to, uh, they came up to stay with us for the weekend and we all went to see the show. So I wanted to research it and she made me uh, some playlists. And then I started like researching the record so that I would, you know, know what I was getting into at the concert. And uh, I kind of flipped out on how good some of the songwriting is. Awesome. I really loved a lot of it. And I, I mean, the concert was like some combination of, I mean, look, she'd be great if she was just on stage with a guitar or a piano, because yeah. when she did that, she was amazing. But the concert was like some combination of a Broadway play, uh, a really cool theme ride at, a, I mean, ride at a theme park. And the first time I saw Avatar in 3D and blew my mind, <laughs> it was it was the most incredible technologically advanced thing I have ever seen. I mean, I was, it was jaw dropping, like how bleeding edge they are on what they're doing in those shows for the technology of like a show, you know, cause I know I play shows every day and I love playing in my band. This is a whole other thing. Yeah. And, yeah. and they did it in such a way that it wasn't, it wasn't like, here's a bunch of flash to distract you from this is a bunch of mediocre music. They did it in such a way that was like, here's a bunch of stuff that really accentuates and elaborates upon the music and makes the music more involving and moving, which I was kind of flipped out by. The artistry that went into all the production side of it was like, I don't know. You know, I just, we were talking about this afterwards because Chris was on tour with you 2 20 years ago at one point and i remember going to that shows because our tour manager came up in u2's organization like mm. from the beginning together so we know those guys and i went to a bunch of u2 shows when i was younger and they were really on the you know the front edge of technology and shows with what they were doing but this thing made them look like what it was was like uh, first generation stuff 20 years ago it, it was fucking crazy like it's I was not kind I of I haven't been to a stadium show in a long time. I wasn't really excited about it, but but it was it was fucking phenomenal. I have to say, and I've been listening to that music a lot the last week before that and since then, like reviewing it more and kind of being really impressed by the production, the the songwriting, her performances. Like it's kind of knocking me out. It surprised me. I I long tried to rage against the I don't know. Like we talk a lot about her fan base scares me because it's so passionate. And like, yeah. there's a part of me that wants to rage against that. And then we were up in New York at the Barstool office and we did this new video series we're doing where you get drunk and you review an album while you're doing it. And they did Taylor <laughs> Swift's 1989. And by like the fourth song and like my third drink, I was like, holy shit, this is fucking sick, dude. I was like, the songwriting really is great. I can't deny it. Yeah. It's weird. Those guys, uh, like those Swedish producers like Max Martin, Martin and Shellback. Shellback. Yeah. Those guys have made a lot of music with bands that I have not liked. And so I mm -hmm. always kind of thought of them as kind of hacks because they know how to make hits, but uh, I just didn't like any of it. You know, this boy band stuff. But it made me realize what a difference it makes them getting to work with a good songwriter and a better mm -hmm. singer who actually cares about the music. And then they yeah. end up just being like really craftsman-like talented producers who turn this into something yeah because some of those songs all those all the hits from 1989 and reputation and red all of those are max martin and yep. shellback and i went through because i went through and checked who did this one okay this is them same and like wow working with someone good it's an entirely different thing from them doing some boy band music yep. like this is a whole yep. other thing where it's like oh 
put them with someone really good and they'll make them great, really yeah. inventive. I, I, it was kind of, I've also people I've taken for granted for a lot of years that I was forced to really like completely rethink the last couple of weeks. Well, yeah. well from yeah, a production yeah. side, like, did you work with T-Bone Burnett? Yeah, he did the, the first album. No shit. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's kind of what made him a big, uh, a big deal as a record producer. It was that was the first big, I think, really in, big record he did. I and then I re- and then Jake Dylan and I, who were friends from the Viper Room, mm-hmm. we talked a lot because they'd made their first album. It was pretty good. They got dropped though by Virgin. It didn't do well, and but it was kind of unformed and it wasn't like a sense of who they were. And I said, T Bone is really difficult in some ways. But he's very good at working on people's first albums or the ones that like make them who they are. He'd done the Los Lobos stuff, yeah. the Bodines. He did yeah. some really formative stuff with bands. And I suggested him to Jake and they ended up using it. And I actually ended up going and singing on that record. And that's what the one, the Wallflowers came after us and were a big hit too. Did he, did, he did bring it down the horse? Bring it down the horse? Yeah. That's why I suggested him to Jake and T Bone did that. Those are kind of two in a row that he did that. Those are the two records that made him, you know, T-Bone Burnett, sort of. Well, it's funny. I just I just last night watched the uh, the Lost Basement Tapes documentary uh, where he went in with, like, uh, Taylor Goldsmith and, and Marcus Mumford and Rhiannon Giddens, and I geeked out on T-Bone Burnett. But I think it leads me to my question of, like, if you could work with a producer that you haven't worked with previously, do you think could unlock something in you as a songwriter, you as a band? Like, who would you pick? I don't know. Uh, I, I, re- I really in Kenny Carkey. Like for the longest time, I only worked with people once. Mm-hmm. And then on, you know, because I always felt like I had more to learn from different people. Mm-hmm. Um, then we worked with Gil Norton again on Saturday nights and Sunday mornings. He had done Recovering the Satellites, our second record. And I, I really was into him because he did all the Pixies records, you know, that right. was, they were really formative for me. Um, and then we worked a bunch of times with Brian Deck since then, too. He did the Sunday mornings half of Saturday nights and Sunday mornings. And then we've been working with Brian for like the last three records and it's been kind of great. I just kind of love working with him, but I had thought about it. You know, I don't know. Shit. I mean, I like the idea of remixing and doing other stuff. It'd be interesting to try something with like Max Martin at some point. I don't know. I, I don't, uh. don't think I never really thought about that stuff. Cause I like, don't like to work the way they work. Right. I, I really like to feel stuff out in the studio and just play and get a, a groove with the band. But but I, I was sort of just intrigued by what a good job they do of making uh, just almost like the Motown production team, how they just sort of knew how to make something that you yeah. could, that was really genius, but you couldn't help listening to it over and over again at the one point, you know, in the sixties. Um, Before we started the the episode, we were talking about our mutual friend, Matthew Coleman. I think that'd be an interesting, real cool. Ooh. Oh yeah. Matt is really talented that way. The stuff, the Winneka bowling, these stuff is so good. So that's good. not, I mean, he's someone I actually kind of, that's not a bad idea. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I hard. I, we're not easy to work with. <laughs> I, I often, I often don't want to wish that upon friends, you know, yeah. I respect yeah. that. I do. I'm I'm going to step out shortly, but I, I had one more question before I dip off this interview. And going back through, and I was just counting down the hits, and then I got to the song from the Shrek 2 soundtrack, right? Which is a great fucking song, and I love asking people about big syncs that they've had. But the one question I did have is, that video treatment where they put your hair and goatee onto a rabbit, <laughs> did you know that was happening? Did they approve that, or did you watch that and go, what the fuck is this? No, that was all me. 
Was it? <laughs> oh. <laughs> was it? Were you in a motion capture suit as a giant rabbit? No, I just didn't want to be in the video. <laughs> I was busy. I was I was feeling like I was getting really self-conscious on film. Like I was great on stage, but I had just been feeling less and less comfortable with myself. And I was just getting really self-conscious. And I felt like I was really shitty in a few videos in a row before that, where I had just been kind of stiff and just not feeling good about myself. And I just, I said, look, th this is an animated movie. You should have an animated version of me. That's, you know, yeah. Try a rabbit. You know, I'd been a <laughs> rabbit for Halloween for like 20 years, a lot of years at that point. And I, I, uh, I suggested that. And I just, it's, it's kind of, I just didn't want to be in any videos for a while. That's and, fucking awesome. And I suggested that, and and they, I fucking love that horny little rabbit like, <laughs> around that chick's bedroom. Yep. <laughs> oh my god, dude! That honestly, you know, fuck that. That's how you end the interview right there. But I, before yeah. we do leave, I just you guys are going on tour. Uh, when do you guys kick off? Where are you heading? I'm leaving Sunday. Uh, we're going. We start off in LA. We're playing like a semi-secret show at the. Uh, won't be after this. Yeah. At, uh, <laughs> I think they announced it yesterday anyways at the Troubadour in LA, the little oh, club shit. in LA. And then uh then we're heading to Omaha and we start okay. the tour kind of in Omaha. Although Dashboard doesn't really join us until indie, like three shows, two shows later. So Counting Crows and Dashboard Confessional? Yeah, man, I'm so excited because Chris is one of my best friends and I've wanted to go on tour with Dashboard for 20 years now. Yeah. Uh, and we just could not get promoters. Didn't think it was the same audience that it wouldn't work. And, uh, I toured with Chris's other band, his bluegrass band, twin yep. forks. They opened for us. And it was like the best time. Cause he's the best guy on earth. Yeah. Uh, so man, I like hearing that. Yeah. He's like the best guy you've ever met ever. And I, I love him and I cannot wait to hang out all, all summer. It's like touring with your best friends is, is really cool. Cause mm -hmm. You can see them play every night, and you don't have to like. I don't know. It's just it's just nice. Are you gonna hey, bring my... the dreads back for the tour? Bring the what? The dreads? Nah, they're done, man. How long they've been? Now I'm just growing my luscious yeah, hair. Yeah, you have beautiful hair, by the way. It's coming back. It, it was kind of fucked up after having <laughs> dreads hanging off for thirty years. But uh, like, I really love the. You know, when I was a kid, I had a big problem in my life that like. I would just, I was really uncomfortable. I have a dissociative disorder, which makes the world seem like it's not real. And I didn't like looking in the mirror because I felt like that's not who I thought I was. And it didn't feel right what I was seeing in the mirror. It didn't feel like me. But when I got the dreads, it was like the first time in my life I felt like, oh, now that's how I feel inside. Wow. I, I can wake, shake my head around and wave it. That, that feels like me. I'm in a rock band. That's how I, that feels like me. And it was a really important, like, self-confidence thing for me it was it was kind of huge for a lot of years but you know it was also 30 years and i feel like i was just happy when i shaved them off you know I was <laughs> like for months i would like be in people's houses or my house i would pass by a bathroom and i would look around and i would go in the bathroom i would stick my head under the sink and just like get my hair wet and then dry it off because it was really short it would dry for five seconds i hadn't been able to stick my head under a sink in years <laughs> i couldn't get the dreads wet so like right. It was just so good that for the first year after I shaved them off, I was constantly sticking my head under the sink at people's houses because <laughs> it felt so like novel, you know, and, and good. Uh, now it's getting a little too long for that. It's too hard to dry. It. No, man, but, it's beautiful. It has a yeah. beautiful head of hair. Thanks, man. That's how we that's how we leave this off right there. Just me being like, dude, you got great hair. 
Horny rabbits and great hair, man. That's yeah, horny rabbits and great hair. That's the name of the tour right there. Yeah. So you'll see the Cannon Crows on the Horny Rabbits and Great Hair Tour with Dashboard Confessional. Next tour, man. If this episode is big enough, we'll just like, that's the name. Say no more. All right. Damn, that's fucking sick. All right, Adam, thank you so much, man. We'll uh, we'll see you soon. Your seat's always open, all right? Thanks, man. Appreciate it. All right, brother. Take it easy. See you later. Catch you soon. Thank you, guys. All right, so that was our interview with Adam Durrance from Counting Crows. Go see them on tour this summer. Kenny, what was the name of the tour that I was going to name it? Oh, you remember? It was like... It was like horny rabbits and oh yeah, horny rabbits and dreads or horny rabbits and hair. <laughs> horny rabbits and good hair. Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of that, yo, he did say that if this episode is big enough, he'll name his tour that. So, <coughs> fucking click that link, pussies. Um, no, great interview, great guy. Um, yeah, dude, Dave and Dante. I'm. <laughs> what are they doing? They're not pushing. They're not, dude. They don't push P whatsoever. Yeah. Remember when that was a thing? Pushing P? Yeah. Yo, FaceTime Dave. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Pushing P. What does that mean? <laughs> I'm ser- I'm serious. It's like not a joke. It, it was a rap. It. it was a rap song by Gunna and Future where they just have, kept saying the words pushing P over and over and over again. And apparently if something was good, like so say, oh, that's a really nice jacket you have. You pushing P, which oh, means you you're cool. Pushing perfection. That's what it's short for. I don't think uh, that's what it meant. I don't think that's exactly what I it like meant. To, I like to guess. I think that might be the end of hip hop. That that might have been the death knell. Yeah, <laughs> that was that was the final gasp. Uh, speaking of hip hop, let's go into on our list, off our list. My on the list is Kendrick Lamar and Baby Keem because when we talk about a situation where people want real shit, I said this last week. I think that people are actually looking for something that's funny. Like you know what I mean? Like when we talk about music, like I think people are like past the point of being like, oh, this is good. They're like, that made me laugh. I'm gonna listen to that again. Dude, Johnny, can you pull up the video for the Hillbillies? It's a new song with Kendrick Lamar and Baby Keem. First off, the video was shot on legitimately like a 1997 Sony handheld camera. You got to fast forward like 20 seconds and just bump this shit. And I'm best dressed moving forward. Yeah, tiny tats on. Yeah, all that. Compton Cowboy, all that. Yeah. Big protein. 150 grams of protein. Y'all gotta stop playing, bro. I swear, bro. He gon' fuck up the world. Excuse me, but is that your girl? If she tell, that's a good referral. He be GB talk crazy to me, but can't. Look at this video. I'm not good with the regular girls. Damn, they want a veteran girl. I just. Dude, by the end of the video, Kendrick Lamar is doing those weird talking ad libs that he does. Yeah. He's like, he, Baby Keem says something like, he's like, I hope my girl is celibate. And Kendrick just goes, she's not. <laughs> That's it. Like, Kendrick is so good. And Kendrick is at like such a high level. He'll make a record like uh, fucking Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers and be like, you know what? I'm bored. I'm going to try and make people laugh with how fucking good I am at this shit. I love that. This is the result of Lil B. All this is a result of Lil B. Lil B broke hip hop into a billion pieces, and then somehow it got reconstructed into the point where Kendrick Lamar is doing those talking ad libs. Thank you, Bass God. I also think, I mean, to me, seeing this, it feels like it's again this algorithm playing into things because you look at a video like that, you know, there's like 15 tiny clippable meme sections you know like and everyone's thinking about that in the back of their heads now is like i could write a great chorus or a great verse or i could have a really fucking funny joke slash meme and it's gonna go bigger 
there is a meme that's coming out of it, and it's uh, Kenny. I don't know if you've seen this on Twitter yet. It's like when people are arguing on Twitter now. Somebody will just pop in. In that video, you saw baby baby Keem is just standing in front of the camera with five iPhones in his hands. And like it's just a meme. It just says, You have unlocked five iPhone baby Keem. I don't know what the fuck <laughs> it just came out of nowhere. Like that is really kind of a point. Like virality comes back to what's funny. And you know what? I'm for it. Like yeah. th- that's someone not taking themselves that seriously, but also doing something at an incredibly high level. I enjoy that. I fucking love it. I love it too. Kenny, who's on your list? Um, okay, so on my list is a, a recent band, a band that I recently found that mm. I think everybody's going to be stoked on. This fucking band rules so hard. I think they're new and up and coming. I don't think a lot of people know them yet. They're called Turnstile. Oh, yeah, no. Uh, can you go into that? <laughs> I mean, completely, I'm joking. They're fucking a huge band playing huge shows. And I feel like I'm really late to the game, but I finally, fucking finally, yeah, dude, put it on the other night beyond it being an incredibly cool version of aggressive the mix on that last record those good tones are you fucking out of your mind it's so good so good it's 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 really cool too because i like i had heard of them because will yip who is a producer out of philadelphia who does like code orange and the menzingers and like a bunch of like great hardcore and punk records did them when they were in their infancy when they were still a little more like legit hardcore mixed with 311 because mm-hmm. that's kind of what they are yeah yeah that's accurate yeah like it's and they but great, man they were so hardcore and then had those kind of like rappy essay essay the fucking essay martinez the fucking rapper from uh 311 they'd have these essay moments too and now it's like they found this perfect blend of like rock and hardcore and I mean that glow on is just a fucking all time record, dude. The song "Holiday" is the song that I listening oh. to nonstop. It's fucking pure brutality in the cleanest way. It's crazy. That's what it is. It's not like messy. It's, it's so clean. It's so fucking clean, but it's so aggressive. It's fucking crazy. And the songwriting's good. Yeah, no, it's good. That's like, you know what I mean. That that's the thing for me. Like that always gets me about some of this hardcore shit is I don't even know what's going on in the actual song. You know, like. I don't give a I shit know, but what you're I, saying. Make some noises at me and let me mosh. Right, I'm a moron. Like, I, grandma. <laughs> <laughs> you see that meme I put up on the backstage yeah. face last week? Reposted it. It's so good. It was like five dead at an Elton John concert, and somebody just retweeted it and said, you shouldn't have been in the fucking pit. <laughs> <laughs> Johnny, who's on your list? Um, Back to this meme culture thing. There's an album by Roger Waters from the 90s called Amused to Death. I don't know if you've ever listened to it. It's got Jeff Beck on it. It's a fucking amazing album. It's about being amused to death. And I, like, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm on the, I think I'm on the flip side of you, Colin. I don't know if I'm down with everything just being a joke. Like, I, mean, I like a joke. Isn't everything? No, it well, is. Well, like, I'm not saying everything in the world's serious, but like, I don't know. So anyway, anyway, we don't have to have the debate. Just listen to this album. It's a really fucking great commentary on that. Uh, And also just a fucking amazing production. It's a bad time to be saying you're not. Do you listen to these albums in the dark through your converters on your $6,000 headphone? (laughs) Do do you sync it to out? Do Do you you have a camera in my studio watching me, Kenny? (laughs) (laughs) Do you sync it? I fucking know you. (laughs) Do you sync it to Wizard of Oz and see whether or not it's a thing that follows it along? By the way, I just want to bring this up. Did you fuck? No, it's uh, Dark Side oh, of the Moon. Dark Side of the Moon, yeah. yeah. Uh, get your fucking albums right, Jerk. Fuck you, Did bitch. you see Roger Waters this week got in trouble again for being a Nazi? Yeah, I did see that. 
I well, I don't. Is that I why he's on your list? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see what actually happened because it's part of his stage thing, right? Oh, they always say he's there's a an anti-Semitic streak with him, which I don't know. I don't know shit. About, I don't like Pink Floyd. It's not my band. Never has been. Um, but apparently he had like a giant floating pig, which he always does. But it had swastikas on it this time in Germany. I mean, dressed listen, up like I, an SS I, again, I don't know. I know it's a complicated thing because he's got lots of stances on Palestine and Israel, and that is obviously a fucking complicated situation. But I think in relation to that thing, he's making a commentary on fascism and Nazism. Yeah, he said the elements of my performance that have been questioned are quite clearly a statement in opposition to fascism, injustice, and bigotry in all forms. But doesn't he like super fuck with Palestine? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Like Honestly, that I there's almost nothing in the world I care less about than musicians and politics. Yeah, me neither. And I also really, it's it's at the very bottom of my list. It's also weird for me to see like an English dude, like who has no connection to either state, like take like a diehard stance. I don't, I don't even know what the fuck is going on, but it's like, uh, I always get weirded out when like, uh, actors or musicians who aren't from America take hardline stances on things in America, like John Oliver. John Oliver bothers me because he's a political pundit, make just a wildly left wing political pundit, not from America, but he made his entire bones off commenting on American politics. And it's like, dude, why don't you go handle this shit in England? Do you guys have a lot of shit going on over there? Listen, I he annoys the shit out of me, but I was I don't not I don't care. Like Americans can talk about the rest of the world, the rest of the world can uh, we talk don't about care. America. Like I we don't, don't care. It doesn't bug me, but I also just don't care. When you're the top dog, you don't worry about it. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, we've <laughs> got like four years we got four years left of that and then <laughs> Yeah, maybe short, you know what I mean? Dude, I had a great debate the other day in uh in a different group chat. We were talking about uh I was making fun of the fact of like people in America who like claim their heritage is somewhere else. And then you go to that country and then you're like, oh, wow, I'm just really American. I said when I went to Italy my whole life because I grew up in my grandma's house, I was like, no, I'm Italian. And then I went to Italy and I was like, no, I'm not. I am fucking American <laughs> as hell. And it came to I had I think I had one of my favorite quotes I've ever said in my entire life because we were talking about the difference between American, uh, like Italian, American and Italian cuisine. And just it's like. I said, America finds a way to turn everything into a monster truck rally. (laughs) It's like, Italians are like, oh, try this pasta. And we're like, yeah, you want pasta? Put fucking nine pounds of cheese on it, you fucking bitch. Or like an eggplant parmesan. Like, in America, most of the time, you're going to get a fucking breaded piece of something like this big. It's like a pretty delicate, subtle dish usually, you know? Italian food is a delicate cuisine, not Italian-American food. (laughs) It's, Having said that, I like I like all of it, man. Oh, dude, are you kidding me, dude? I grew up on Italian American food. I, I actually enjoy it more because it's covered in that, cheese. Dude, that's I like why I think tra- travel is so important. If you if you have the opportunity or the luck to be able to travel, it not only like teaches you about the rest of the world so that you're not just such a fucking like oh I only know this one thing about the one place I grew up in but it also makes you appreciate the things where you are from because you can be a, like a bit of a self-hating American because there's a lot of shit in America but go other places and you're like oh it's kind of cool in America <laughs> they do a lot of things right I think that that's me a hundred percent I'm always like I can't wait to get out and see some culture and some old shit and blah 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 and real food and then a couple weeks in you're like dude give me a fucking in and out burger a milkshake my own dude 
whether or not like we all like to admit it, America's fucking sick. The best, dude. yo, USA. It's so sick. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. I, it's fucking so sick, dude. Dude, I was born on the Fourth of July. You don't have to explain to me. Are you born on the Fourth of July? Yeah, man. You not even in America. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say in South Africa. No, I was born AKA, in. I was born in England. In England. Oh my bad. Excuse me. Oh, you mean the worst day ever for you guys when you took that L? When you took that L? Remember 1776? Dude, I'm not English. There's look, you can call me a lot of things. Don't call me English and don't call me Australian. (laughs) I like to call you African because it's it is true. Yeah, I'll happily be called South African, but just not Australian or English. Yeah. Well, fucking remember the war of eighteen twelve, pussy? Yeah, we do. Remember the French and Indian War? USA, USA, let the bodies hit the floor. Let Dude, the- <laughs> I legit got in an argument with somebody because I was saying, uh, I oh, went the f- oh, it was about Europe, and I was like, they were trying to hit me with, like, well, yeah, I mean, Europe did a lot of good things like 500 years ago, like the Renaissance and shit. And I was like, yeah, well, Limp Biscuit's from here, suck my balls. <laughs> I said, we made Limp Biscuit and Monster Energy drink, suck on that, loser. Pretty sure my, my favorite argument in, the, in that regard is like particularly about how violent America is, which there's no fucking arguing that. But it's also like Europe likes to forget that they started two world wars. Right. Or or <laughs> the... like two of them where the whole world was at war started in Europe. Yeah, I don't want to... And it's I don't like... Want... <laughs> Being the history nerd that I am, Europe better just shut the fuck up because you guys got some real bad shit under your belt. Don't make, don't make, don't wake the dog up. Don't wake the big dog up, dude. Because we're coming for you. Yeah, I told you, I'm on. I'm in a fucking mood today. I'm in a mood today. I don't want to hear these European weenies. Although we do have a decent amount of listeners in Europe. Biden's gonna be like, I've had enough of this malarkey. <laughs> what? What's Where going my on? Come on, it's America. What are we doing here? I'm going to Greece in uh, August. Sick, dude. Collapsed economy. That's going to be tight. You're going to live like a king over there. Yeah. (laughs) Also, I I speak Greek or a little bit of Greek. So, like, when you you speak a little bit, I'm like, my dad's side of the family is Greek. So, when you speak even just a little bit to people and you make the effort, like, you, they really, particularly Greece and Italy, I think, they are the most hospitable, like, generous people on earth if you make any, like, even an ounce of effort. I really? Because like my that way. When I oh when yeah I went, for sure. When I went to Italy, my experience was not that because I tried, and the guy looked at me like like that's because you were wearing warm. a fucking American flag bikini. <laughs> I told you this, dude. When I went to Europe, there was not a single time that they handed me a menu at a restaurant in a different la- like because I would come in and speak yeah. Italian to start because I tried. I did try, like speak. I understand Italian okay, and like I brushed up a little bit. And by like the middle of the trip to Italy, I was like, I'll start spitting a little bit here. Literally, they just handed me an American menu. They might as well hand me an American menu and then fucking like crowns the color on it. When I they were like, here you go, moron. Vietnam, I tried to speak Vietnamese everywhere and they would listen to me and then they would just speak English to me back. Every fucking <laughs> <time>. <laughs> oh They were like, this Mexican guy's trying to speak. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Puerto Rican. <laughs> <laughs> do you, how much, do you speak Vietnamese like a fair amount? En- en- enough to like understand when my mom's yelling at me. <laughs> that's my Italian. That's my understanding of Italian. You know, bargain, travel, you know, yeah. bathrooms, restaurants, foods, waters, that kind of stuff. I but don't it, know. I because if we're gonna get geek out, Vietnamese is one of the only inflection-based languages, so you can have the same exact spelled word like meh, mom, meh, church. So it's like very like yeah, yeah, yeah. It's crazy. 
on a weird question here, like, because I don't know much about Vietnamese culture, was there any like imperial power that kind of went into Vietnam? And like, is there like, you know, like a lot of places in like uh, Central America have like French or like things like that? French, like, all French. The French is it French? Roid the shit out of the country, and that's why Vietnamese huh. food is so good and uses a like lot. Those, of French. Like ban me, man, with on a it's on a French baguette ish yeah. loaf. It's funny. It's almost like French Indonesia Europe, was like. It's almost like. France and other countries in Europe have some pretty so dark past, huh? So oh yeah, dude. Europe. You want to go look up the history of Belgium? Like that's Belgium. Belgium's up there with some of the fucking worst shit ever done. Yeah, I thought they just did chocolate. Now they do. <laughs> <laughs> they were such naughty little boys <laughs> that, dude, that, thought... that the world government's like, listen, all you're allowed to do now is chocolate. Just shut the fuck up and make chocolate. <laughs> You See, University of Pennsylvania. Same this story. is why I this is why I love history because it diffuses a lot of arguments because it's like you guys suck. If you know enough, yeah, it, it yeah. diffuses every argument because you realize that the history of the world is the history of crime, effectively. Yes. Here's a really interesting take, and I want to get the fuck out of here. But when I was in <laughs> Vietnam and you go to like the war memorials, obviously the narratives flipped. So and America's as it probably should be. And then you read it and you're like, huh. huh. Like, I wonder who's fucking. <laughs> you know what that means? They're like, Our, these villages were bombed by Americans on this day and blah, blah, blah. And you're like, obviously, you hear the other side of it. Yeah. Lives. That's <laughs> a trip. I don't, I feel like most of my life, it's always been like, yeah, we kind of dropped the ball on that one. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, yeah, yeah, that was a. <laughs> yeah, I'd but that's kind of the extent now. of it. It's not, you never kind of hear the <laughs> true depth of how crazy it was, what what was going on there. My yeah. mom, just now, I'm almost 40, and my mom is just now starting to go into stories like crazy, like running with other people's infants in their hands. Was your mom in violent. Vietnam at that point? Yeah, she, she was still there during the war. She left. No shit. Two or something like that. But, uh, it's crazy. Like forty years into my life, she's just now starting to like tell me some stories, and you're like, "Holy fucking shit, mom!" Yeah, dude. Yeah, Damn, that's, that's a music crazy. podcast right there, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. <laughs> yeah. The first half we did a lot of music. The back half thanks was more history. <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot, Adam Dirtz, for the amazing interview. It really was a great Link. interview. Um, thank you to Protect Link, our sponsor. Think about this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Colin's advertiser voice is awesome. <laughs> yeah. Now I get Can we leave now? <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you to everybody involved this week. Thank you to David Dante, you fucking schlubs. They have to Weenies. do an episode by themselves. That'd be sick. Do you know how quickly I would click off that interview? First off, the three of us can handle this. I feel like we have great conversation. <laughs> I can keep going. I just want to go eat pizza. I understand that. Uh, we'll be back next <laughs> week. Uh, a couple interviews we got coming up. I think we'll have a one that Dante did in Las Vegas actually next week, which should be tight. Uh, a lot of shit coming up. Uh, boys, anything for me? Hell no. No. All right. Everyone go fuck <laughs> themselves. Belgium sucks. Bye. Bye. <laughs>